0: This is an RNZ podcast.
1: Hi, I'm Dan Slevin, sitting in for Simon Morris. This week on At the Movies. In Shreveport, Louisiana, a young man makes his radio debut and changes music forever. Please, Lord, don't let him hurt my baby. Hurt him? Looks like they want to. Northland, New Zealand, a young woman's experience of injustice turns her into a voice of freedom for generations.
0: We march to be seen, we march to be heard. Not one more acre of Maori land will be stolen.
1: And in Chicago, Illinois, a group of middle-class young women take the law into their own hands.
0: There were really cogent and important reasons, but we would really try to make clear to them they didn't have to justify themselves.
1: Come on, you got to get on in. They've already announced on the radio. Come on, let's go. He's a young singer from Memphis, Tennessee.
0: Give him a warm hayride welcome to a Mr. Elvis Presley.
1: Get a haircut, buttercup!
0: In that moment, I watched that skinny boy transform into a superhero. Well, you may go to college, you may go to school, you may have a pink Cadillac, but don't you make nobody.
1: I'm pretty sure I'm mangling a famous line from John Ford's western The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance when I say, when you have to choose between history and legend, print the legend. But that's what jumped into my head while I was watching Baz Luhrmann's Elvis, an everything but the kitchen sink biography of the king of rock and roll himself, Elvis Presley. There's nothing in here that will surprise anyone with even a passing interest in Presley's life, except perhaps Lerman's attention-seeking tendency to drop in anachronisms and animation. But the beats, both story and music, are well known. Presley grows up dirt poor in Tupelo, Mississippi, and then Memphis, Tennessee. His twin Jesse dies at birth, and his mother pours all the love and ambition destined for the two of them into the young Elvis. Obsessed with the twin musical forces of black rhythm and blues and the transcendence of the tent gospel singers he could hear in the neighborhood, as well as the country music through the powerful new medium of radio, Presley merged them all into the one great driving force of popular music in the second half of the 20th century, rock and roll.
0: I wish to promote you, Mr. Presley. Tomorrow, all of America will be talking about my war.
1: Hound, Who the hell is that? All the time. Elvis Presley.
0: If you don't do the business, the business will do you.
1: i do what I want to do. Sing the music that I want. Don't play Overcoming his natural shyness, Presley eventually cuts a record with the producer Sam Phillips and makes it onto the Louisiana Hayride radio show where a carnival showman, or snowman as he preferred, named Tom Parker saw the effect that he had on the younger members of the audience and decided that he had discovered his lifetime meal ticket. Parker was already a music manager. The well-known country crooner Hank Snow was his headliner at the time. But he could see that this kid Presley was the future, even if he didn't really understand how or why. The film follows Parker and Presley, played with gusto by a young Austin Butler, through the various chapters of the singer's life the death of his mother from heartbreak and alcohol when Elvis gets drafted, mooning over the teenage Priscilla while on leave from the army in Germany, the 68 comeback special following years of diminishing movie returns, trapped in the gilded cage of Las Vegas instead of touring international stadiums like Paul McCartney or Led Zeppelin. Presley was an unsophisticated man, but not an uncomplicated one. Yet the film is unable to put its finger on any of that complication, whatever it might have been. Presley's great love and affection for black music is clearly on show, but it's taken as read, never questioned or explained, despite it being so rare in a poor white boy of the time. So, apart from Lerman's distinctive aesthetic, which is like being pursued by a steamroller down a blind alley, what is the point of this exercise? Well, my theory is that it lies partly in the choice to use Colonel Tom Parker as the film's framing device, the least reliable narrator that could have been chosen.
0: Comic book heroes all find their superpowers. Elvis found music. Uh, bring that bass up, Jerry. I wish to promote you, Mr. Presley. I believe I can be great.
1: Ba-da-bong, ba-da-bong.
0: Some people wanted to put me in jail. The so Well's moving. Don't so much as wiggle a finger. I'm gonna show you what the real Elvis is like tonight. In that moment, Elvis the man was sacrificed, and Elvis the god was born.
1: Tom Hanks plays Parker in a fat suit and with a false nose. He's not unrecognizably Hanks. He's just too Hanksian for that. It's a physical transformation, but not a protean one. This Parker has Hanks' glint in his eye and his charm. So what would have taken Hanks to the Gold Coast to play a villain in this picture and to become the first big celebrity COVID victim in the process? This film is as much a tribute to Parker as it is a condemnation of the damage he did. The existence of this film is simply a new chapter in the family business, bringing the king of rock and roll to a new generation, aligning him with some modern stars in order to do so. And this business is the one that Parker invented. It's the thing that he built. So, of course, Parker is the centre of it all. Even though you can't believe a word he says. It's deliciously meta, and I think that's why Hanks himself is on board and having such a good time. And despite his prodigious, stylistic fingerprints, Lerman is just a hired gun here, working for Elvis Presley Enterprises, who are the ones calling all the shots. They're the ones that will have said, print the legend.
0: He had no idea what he had done.
1: We can go together with
0: your future, Mr. Presley, is at risk. Hmm. Once told me, things are too dangerous to say.
1: Sing. I'll finish with a couple of comments about the production. The set, costumes, and digital backgrounds and effects are brilliant and worth every cent. The slightly dodgy American accents from the Australian supporting cast are a little bit less so. Elvis is rated M for drug use and is playing in cinemas all over New Zealand now.
0: If we can get enough of us together, we have a real chance of solving our problems. We must educate our women. This is
1: how you ruffle feathers, Tina.
0: This is how we will bring hope back to our people. Let's get to work.
1: Whenever it needs a little bit of extra help getting us close to Elvis, Baz Luhrmann's Elvis movie cheats a little and uses the real thing. Firstly, his voice in many of the stage performances, and then, when it would have been prohibitively expensive to recreate aspects of the Vegas shows, Lerman uses clips from the famous Elvis That's The Way It Is and Elvis on Tour documentaries. And generally, it does a good job, even if you do end up yearning for the real thing we saw in those films. James Napier-Robertson and Paula Fetu-Jones' biography of Dame Fina Cooper, Fina takes a similar tack. Indeed, like Elvis, and I'm not sure if they were ever expecting to be compared so closely, but it's a sign of the company they're keeping now, they choose to close their film with real footage of their subject. On one hand, both films are saying, look how close we got. But at the same time, both are acknowledging that ultimately they only got this close, could only get this close. FINA also falls back on archive footage when those moments would be impossible to recreate. The 1975 crossing of the Harbour Bridge by the Hikoi is still a breathtaking sequence, as well as the peaceful approach and arrival at Parliament. Such a contrast to the scenes we saw earlier on this year. I would defy any New Zealand audience to watch those climactic scenes in Fina without respect for those achievements, and also pain for how short we still fall. Unlike Elvis, though, Fina needs no extra character to frame the story. There's no shadowy Tom Parker figure here, manipulating poor Fina Cooper into decisions that she might regret. Fina is framed by the older Fina Cooper, played by Rena Owen, the Fina New Zealand is most familiar with. But it is the younger versions that are the revelation in this story. Let's get to work now, boys.
0: (laughs) So how are things back home?
1: Kind of happy to leave, to be honest. Why is that...? The place feels like it's dying. There's no jobs. Nobody's working the land anymore. A lot of fun moving away to Auckland.
0: Is someone doing something about it?
1: Who? Hmm. Let's get to work now. We've heard it twice already in this segment, and it's the great theme of the picture. Fina's capacity for hard work is her defining characteristic. We see her at every stage of her life, ploughing fields in the Farikai on the marae, finding housing for the homeless, and later back home gathering shellfish. She does so much work in this film, the hikoi from Hokianga to Wellington might have seemed like a bit of a break. Fina Cooper was born in eighteen ninety five. The signing of the Treaty of Waitangi was still living memory, let alone the constant subsequent breaches. The film witnesses her birth, the expectation that she was going to be a male baby, and the quick name change from Joseph to Josephine. Shortly after that, she's a teenager, played by Tiore Nautai, Melbourne, and in trouble for ignoring the fences settlers have put up across newly alienated Northland land. And then, in the blink of an eye, she's a young woman, married to ailing Richard Gilbert, played by Richard Tiare, determined to make what land her people have left work for them, and to prove to Sir Aparana Nata, that great Maori futurist, that his faith in technology and agricultural systems are not misplaced. This iteration is played by Miriam McDowell, all too often these days seen as a second fiddle to a central male character, but she is one of our best, and I implored the New Zealand screen industry to find a suitable vehicle for her talents sooner rather than later. She carries the long central section as Fina discovers her talent for organising as well as experiencing her great personal tragedies. It's a big chunk of work, supported by Vinnie Bennett as her second husband William Cooper and James Rolleston as cousin Gabriel.
0: I used to come here when I was a child... They owned all the land around here, as far as you could see.
1: The place feels like it's dying. There's no jobs. I'm sorry, Finna. I know
0: things are difficult for you right now. Our land sold from under us. Our culture, scattered. And the dust, Fina. No. Things are to change. We must change them. I'm not sure I am one of those people.
1: No one hears us, fire. But when you speak, people listen, you could make our voices heard. We've become accustomed in recent years to this sort of biographical portrait of a well-known New Zealander. They've become a bit of a staple on Sunday night television. Joan Olomu, Billy T. James, etc. I'm fully expecting the Ingham twins or Chloe from Wainui Amata at some point. But Fina is in a different league. While I sometimes wondered why some topics got a lot of exposition for international audiences, I suppose, and others didn't, and also whether New Zealanders in the 20th century really spoke that slowly to each other, there's no question that FINA has a powerful and important story to tell, and it does it well. They're here. They've come to join us.
0: We march to be seen, we march to be heard. Not one more acre of land will be stolen.
1: FINA is rated PG for violence, and you can find it at select cinemas all over the country now. Good evening. In a landmark ruling, the Supreme Court today legalized abortions. The majority in cases from Texas and Georgia said
0: that the decision to end a pregnancy during the first three months belongs to the woman and her doctor, not the government. Thus, the anti-abortion laws of 46 states were rendered unconstitutional. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> it was a hallelujah.
1: I don't often start a review with a clip from the end of a film, but the Janes reached such a triumphant conclusion with this clip of Walter Cronkite announcing Roe vs. Wade in 1973 that I was about to punch the air until it came home to me that everything that these women had fought for was already coming undone. The Janes is a documentary about a group of Chicago women who came together in the early 1970s to save women from the quacks and butchers who were damaging and often killing women in the service of backstreet illegal abortions. Of course, almost all abortions were illegal then, but as we've heard recently, making abortion illegal only makes them unsafe, not non-existent. These stories are set during that tumultuous time where rights for women were being fought for at the same time as civil rights for African Americans and while Establishment America was unsuccessfully fending off communism in Vietnam. For a particular type of conservative, white American male, it must have seemed that everyone was out to get them. And they probably were. But so the fight back was fierce. One way to keep women from getting too independent, too uppity, was to ensure that they didn't stay too far from the home. Children were good for that. Restricting their financial independence was important, and children were good for that too. Forcing the poor to continue to have children also kept a lid on the class struggle. And desperate women at the time would turn to anyone who looked like they might be able to help.
0: I had no other options. I wanted it over with and I didn't care how it was done. I was that desperate. An acquaintance said, here's a phone number, and it was the mob. They had to talk in code. They said, do you want a Cadillac, a Chevrolet, or a Rolls-Royce? The Chevy was the cheapest, $500. Um, A Cadillac was something like $750, and if you wanted the Rolls-Royce, and we're talking about the 60s here. It was $1,000. That's what the mob charged for an abortion. I said, well, I think I, I want a Chevrolet. And they, OK, fine. Well, you know, we'll see you at this address with your money.
1: A group of women gathered to see what they could do to change things. Many had firsthand experience. They weren't lawyers or politicians, but they were organised. Initially just a counselling service, they set up a phone number and told women to ask for Jane. From there, a woman would be given instructions about a place to go, the front, and then taken to another place for the procedure, the place. It was a pay-what-you-can-afford kind of arrangement. Early on, the procedures were performed very safely and effectively by a genial man called Dr. Mike, who eventually turned out not to be a medical doctor at all, but a moonlighting construction worker. He's one of the great characters in a documentary that has plenty of them. But the sheer volume of these procedures meant that the whole group was at terrible risk of legal jeopardy many, many years in prison. For some of the Janes, as they became known, the pressure and the trauma took their toll.
0: Women would launch into these stories. I have three children, I have no more money, my husband is leaving or my husband is sick or I don't have a husband. I'm 17, I want to go to college and I've got this scholarship and if I don't do this now... They were really cogent and important reasons, but we would really try to make clear to them they didn't have to justify themselves. Their reason for having an abortion was their reason. I was not there to pass judgment.
1: The Janes weren't the only group helping women out in this way, but they were the biggest working illegally in Chicago. There were others who chose to support women by transporting them to states where abortion was legal, flying women to New York, for example. One of these, I was astonished to discover, was called the Clergy Consultation Service, a multi-denominational group of people of faith working together to raise money, provide counselling, and then transport women across state lines. Much of the funding they required came from Hugh Hefner's Playboy organization, which was based in Chicago, and who might have been one of the big beneficiaries of such a service. Who could know?
0: It's not a theological argument, it's a put up job. I've had two abortions, and I felt that God was with me at my side in all of these choices, that it was a God given decision. To exclude women from ethical agency excludes us from humanity, and it turns us into powerless sinners against our own selves.
1: It's a very talking head type of documentary, but the testimonies are compelling, and I've never been much of a fan of dramatic recreation anyway. There's a lot of deeply researched archive footage and photography of the era which all works together well, but it's the careful building of the case for these women and for the women they were supporting that makes the Janes work so well. It doesn't shy away from the class, economic or race inequities that the situation revealed. For the most part, these were middle class or student women or who had husbands who supported them in this work. But it emphasizes the sisterhood and the oppression that they existed under. At one point late in the film, a young protester on the streets of Chicago calls for the repeal of all anti-abortion laws repeal restricted contraceptive laws and the end to forced sterilization and i had to stop for a moment and take that in women could be forced to have children and forced not to have children what was that about the janes is rated r16 for violence language and uh, what they call content and it's streaming for neon subscribers now
0: Be lights burning brighter somewhere. Got to be birds flying higher in a sky more blue. If I can dream of a better land where all my brothers walk hand in hand, tell me why.
1: And that's our program for this week. A high point of the Baz Luhrmann-Elvis movie is the sequence where the king sings a protest song at the 68 comeback special. I mean, it's a high point because of Presley's performance mostly, but no less of one for that. It's a song I'm very fond of and brought a tear to my eye all over again, and Austin Butler sells it really well. If I can dream, indeed. This week's edition of At The Movies was produced, written and edited by me, Dan Slevin. Next week on the program, I'll be joined by the general manager of the New Zealand International Film Festival, Sally Woodfield, and we'll have a conversation about this year's event, which is very much going to be back in cinemas all over the country in a few weeks' time. Please join us both on At The Movies, here at the same time, next week.